My name is John Hosier. I'm based at uh, Order Road. I have a son called Matthew Hosier who happens to uh, leave the church. Uh, and uh, it's great to really be with you this morning. In fact, at my age, it's really great to be anywhere, actually, but uh, it's great to uh, be with you this morning. And uh, we're going to continue with our studies in the Lord's Prayer, and we're coming to the, the last phrase of that today. Matthew Ashton is preaching kind of a parallel message at Order Road this morning, and also got a couple of baptisms there. So I'm actually going to read a small passage of Scripture from Luke 4. Uh, if the Lord's Prayer slide could go up behind me, but I'll read a, a few verses from Luke 4 and verse 16. So Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So here we are just with our last study over three weeks uh, of this 21 days of prayer and fasting, uh, looking at the last phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there is a sense, although we've actually said it this morning, there is a sense in which we should never actually pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, you might say, hey, that's a bit of an outrageous statement to make. But we need to appreciate that really, with the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is teaching us, and it is the Lord's Prayer, it's the prayer that Jesus gave, but what he's really doing is teaching us how to pray. He's given us a pattern for our prayer life, if you like, or a framework for our prayer life. And if you, if you just analyze the, the Lord's Prayer, you'll find that in it you have worship, you have a cry to God for his intervention, we are asking for our daily needs to be met, we are praying for forgiveness, we are able to pray for other people, and we're praying for protection. All of that is in the Lord's Prayer, and so you can see it is very comprehensive. In fact, I would say probably for decades now that this is exactly the pattern of prayer that I use. I use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern and framework for my prayers every day. Uh, and uh, it's also useful, of course, because if you've got that kind of pattern of prayer, if you find yourself wandering off for a moment, as sometimes one can in prayer, uh, if you're using that framework, you can think, oh, where was I? Oh, yes, give us this day our daily bread. So I'm, I was there, and I can get back into it, so it's helpful like that. Now, obviously, I'm not really saying to you, never pray the Lord's Prayer, but if we simply pray it constantly, day in, day out, or even Sunday in, Sunday out, if that's all we do, it's very easy, I think, for the Lord's Prayer simply to become words and not prayer. Uh, we just use the words. Now, it's also useful, uh, however, to, to say it sometimes because it does remind us what uh, should be in the framework of a prayer life, what should be in the pattern of prayer. And then uh, Matthew was saying last week at Order Road, it's also helpful to say it, of course, because in a way it expresses our unity with the whole body of Christ worldwide. 
Every day, millions of people are saying the Lord's Prayer. And when we say it, we're joining with them. And we're expressing our unity with the, the body of Christ throughout the world. So today, this last phrase, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so you don't try and guess my second and third D. I'm going to tell you that there are three Ds this morning, right? They are doxology, declaration, and decision, uh, as we look at uh, this last phrase of the Lord's Prayer. So first of all, I want to say that this phrase at the end is what we call a doxology. It's an expression of praise and certainty. That's what a doxology is. And really, it's a shout. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And it comes at the end of the prayer and therefore confirms and in a way underlines what we've already said in the prayer. So we say yours is the kingdom in this way of being a doxology. And of course, that's already been in the, in the prayer that we see that the Lord's Prayer contains, the expression, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So we've already prayed that in the prayer itself. That's in the prayer right there. We, we've asked for it already. But here, at the end of the prayer, it's like a shout of praise. It's this doxology. We're acknowledging that God is king of the kingdom that we've asked him to, to bring in. Now, in the Bible, uh, and most particularly in the Gospels, there is a huge amount of teaching on the kingdom. And my conviction is that there is so much there that I think very often we fail to see it's there. Uh, so Jesus, again and again, in his teaching, will say the kingdom of God is like. But very often, I think, we don't see that phrase because we're just so used to it, so commonly in the text that somehow we can kind of overlook it. It reminds me a bit of listening to weather forecasts. I wonder if you've ever had this experience, if you're watching the weather forecast on television or listening to it on the radio, and you're doing it with somebody else. So uh, I've done this repeatedly with my wife. We'll be there, and we'll, we're listening to the weather forecast, and uh, suddenly, when it's finished, I'll say, what did she say? <laughs> and uh, the fact is, you can listen to something, but not hear it. And with a thing like the weather forecast, you're so often listening to a weather forecast that it's very easy not actually to hear what is being said. And I think, in a way, that it's like that with this phrase, the kingdom of God. Jesus says again and again, the kingdom of God is like. And we, we read it, but perhaps we don't hear it because the phrase is so familiar. So let me tell you something about the kingdom because it's very important. What is this is from the Bible, of course, telling you something about the kingdom. Now, we have, we have a king, King Charles III. I think that's the first time I've ever said that publicly. I, gosh, in all my preaching life, over 50 years, I've talked about the queen again and again and again. I've never said publicly King Charles III, so that's the first strange thing to say almost, uh, it seems still. So, but if we talk about our king, King Charles III, what's his kingdom? Well, it's the United Kingdom. We use that term. And he is king of the United Kingdom. And probably when we think like that, if we do, we think of territory. It's this country uh, that he is king of. That is true, 
but our king actually has no authority in this country because we live in a democratic, under a democratic system of government, and although we have a king who reigns, he doesn't really rule. We have an elected government that rules and carries authority for this nation and for this country. Now, in the Bible, the word kingdom, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, refers directly to authority. And so, when we speak about God and the kingdom, we're saying that God doesn't just reign, God rules. He has the authority. He is over and above all his people, and indeed, he's over and above all people. Our God is a God who rules. And so when we say, yours is the kingdom, it's this doxology, it's this shout of praise. We're saying, you rule, you're in charge, you have the authority. But also as the doxology, we are saying, yours is the power. And again, in this context, it is a shout of praise. And I think here we should see at the end of the Lord's Prayer that it probably means something like this, you have the power to answer our prayers. Now, if you don't believe that, why pray? That's the danger of actually simply rattling off the Lord's Prayer constantly, week after week, that we uh, are not really asking God for anything, we, we simply are using words. Uh, uh, we don't really, perhaps, as we say the Lord's Prayer, if we do it constantly, we don't really think, well, he can really do this. We're just saying words. That's, that's why I'm a little nervous about us kind of overusing the Lord's Prayer just in the form it is, without realizing it's a pattern of teaching for us. But if you, if you believe that God has power to answer our prayers, then obviously we need to pray. Jesus, of course, gave a lot of other teaching in the New Testament on the subject of prayer. I think, for example, of Jesus telling us to ask and to seek and to knock. And I've always thought that when Jesus teaches like that on prayer, he's teaching about the intensity of prayer. I think what he's encouraging us to do is to pursue God. He's saying we, we need to ask him, but we need to go further than that, and we really need to seek things from God. Hey, we need to go further than that and knock on the door to obtain answers from God. And of course, there, there are promises uh, to do with that teaching. So Jesus says, ask, and it'll be given to you. He says, seek, and you will find. He says, knock, and the door will be open to you. So we are encouraged to pursue God to ask, to seek, and knock, and to believe that he has the power, as we do so, to answer our prayers. Let me just, because we are in a season of a building fund, which you may feel the pressure of slightly less here than we do at Order Road, but we're one church, and hopefully we're all still very much engaged with that. Let me just tell you about two times of prayer in my last church in Brighton. Uh, when I was an elder there for some 23 years, we went through a huge building program there. And there's two prayer meetings that particularly stick in my mind. When we bought the building to which we had to do an enormous amount of construction, we wanted to pray for, uh, pay for the building itself before we did the construction work outright. 
And we got to a point where we just needed £30,000 more. This is going back 30 years, by the way. We needed, uh, uh, needed £30,000 more to complete the purchase of this building. And uh, we gathered a prayer meeting. Now, I, I was the lead elder at the, po the point, and as we gathered the prayer meeting, I have to admit, I was a bit disconsolate. Uh, it was a kind of a Dullam's Cave sort of a prayer meeting. Uh, I thought, gosh, what have we got here tonight? You know, nobody's got any money. Uh, I, I looked, looked at them and thought, we're not going to get £30,000. This was not a £30,000 prayer meeting, all right? <laughs> It was one where you kind of owed them money, really, you know, it looked like that. But never, nevertheless, we prayed, we asked, and we sought God. And do you know what happened on the following Sunday when we had the gift day? Exactly £30,000. I know that God answers prayer. And then we came to the end of our building fund, and I say we're going back decades now, uh, but we needed, we wanted to, to pay it off uh, before the, that's right, before the close of the old millennium. So we wanted to start 2,000 uh, debt-free completely on this building. We needed £300,000, right? And we, this was what we wanted to make the final gift day uh, to get the debt cleared. Uh, and so we, we had a gift day in October, and we, know, we knew that £300,000 was an enormous amount of money. So we said to the congregation, look, give on the gift day, but also pledge any money that you will definitely redeem before the end of 1999. And so on the gift day itself, we took in, I think, about half the money. I think we took in about 160,000. So we still had about another 140,000 to get by the end of the year. And boy, did we pray. And on the 31st of December, 1999, in the bank account, we had 301,000 pounds. I know that God answers prayer. All right. So God has power to answer our prayer. And we're saying, yours is the power. It's a shout of praise. So let's uh, say that God has the power and let's pray. And then yours is the glory. That's also a shout of praise in, in this doxology. Whatever our experience as a Christian, we should always be looking forward with hope. And one of the things that we should hope for is that ultimately what we're going to see is the full manifestation of the glory of God. It's what we hope for, one of the things we hope for. At the very end, we will see the full manifestation of the glory of God. Let me give you a couple of illustrations from the Bible about this. If you go to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, and here's a, a verse that's speaking about the second coming of Christ, so we're at the end of human history here. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, we read, on the day he comes, this is referring to Jesus, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. Right? He'll be glorified amongst his people and we'll just marvel at the sight of him. All the glory will be his and we'll marvel at him as he comes again. Or dip into the book of Revelation, and you'll see it's full of doxologies that are giving praise to the glory of God and of Jesus Christ. So if you go to, for example, Revelation chapter 7 and verses 11 and 12, this is just one example of this. Here's the hosts of heaven. All the angels were standing around the throne 
and round the elders who represent the whole church and the four living creatures who represent the whole of creation. And they all fall down on their faces before the throne and they worship God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And here's the host of heaven praising the glory of the King. So quite simply, at the end of time, that is what we'll see. We'll see the full manifestation of the glory of God and we'll be worshippers forever. We'll be singing doxologies forever, all right? And the praise of the glory of God. Our Father, hallowed be your name. We don't need to ask him for anything, but there will always be our Father, hallowed be your name. And a constant flow of song and doxology. And it will be forever and forever. So this uh, phrase at the end of uh, the Lord's Prayer is at one level a doxology, a shout of praise and of certainty. But it's also a declaration. This is my second point. It's a declaration. A doxology, but also a declaration. So let's look at it again, but this time from that angle of being a declaration. So we're back at yours is the kingdom. And we've already noted that that is... uh, Uh, expressive of the rule and authority of God. In the the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's interesting that when we say your kingdom come, it's immediately followed by your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that indicates to us, again, what the kingdom is all about. It kind of defines the kingdom that when we speak to God about his kingdom coming, we're asking what is done in heaven should be done here on the earth. We're asking about the breakout of God's authority, not only in heaven, but also the breakout of his rule and authority upon the earth. We're looking for heaven on earth uh, in terms of the authority and the rule of God. Now, I've said to you that the kingdom of God is so dominant in the New Testament Actually, it's the central message that Jesus preached. Uh, And one commentator, perhaps almost to overstate this, but nevertheless it makes the point, one commentator says that Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom. It was his dominant teaching. And let me just give you an example of of how you can see that to be true. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, after his suffering, so he'd been to the cross, Jesus presented himself to the disciples and gave many proofs that he was alive. So Jesus had suffered at the cross, and now he has risen from the dead. What then happens? He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, right? That's the last 40 days that Jesus spent on earth was with his disciples. What did he do? Do you remember what he did? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So Jesus, crucified and risen, just got 40 days left with his disciples. What does he do? The Greek text says he kept on speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So it illustrates just how strong this theme is. And I've only got time to give you the headlines about this, but I want to just press it home a bit because this is so important that we declare the kingdom of God. Um, For for one thing, Jesus himself, in his very person, expressed the kingdom. 
That's why I've read to you just now from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, as we read in Luke 4, goes into the synagogue, he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he opens it up, and what he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, and good news will be preached to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to proclaim the Lord, year of the Lord's favour, to set the oppressed free. What Jesus is reading, and what every Jew in that synagogue knew he was reading, was the manifesto of the kingdom of God. If the kingdom breaks out on the earth, what would it look like? That's the passage that tells you. That's what the kingdom will look like. And one great illustration of this is that Jesus says that there will be sight for the blind. Do you know that in the Old Testament, nobody is ever cured of blindness? There's not a miracle on the cure of blindness in the Old Testament. What happens when Jesus comes? He brings the rule and authority of God. He opens blind eyes, right? The authority and the rule of God is breaking out here on the earth. So Jesus, in his very person, actually manifests the kingdom. And so when Jesus uh, has read this manifesto, we read there is rapt attention. Every eye in the synagogue is on him. This is what preachers long for, but it's there, right? Every eye is on Jesus. Because everyone is thinking, what on earth is he going to say about that? And what he says is dynamite. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because Jesus was the kingdom. He brought the kingdom. He was the manifestation of the kingdom himself, doing the works of God, bringing in the rule and authority of God. You see how important the kingdom is. But you see also, the church is the agent of the kingdom right now, because we're the body of Christ on earth. So right now, you and I, as the corporate church, we are the agent of the kingdom. We are actually bringing in something of God's rule and authority on the earth. Now, you might say, how? Well, I'll tell you how. We're doing it through, o through Oasis, as Haley and her team work with women who've been abused in the refuge. They're bringing something of God's rule into that situation. When we open up this building now on a Thursday and Friday and call it Gatehouse, and people come in here and need friendship and companionship and warmth, what are we doing? We're expressing something of the rule and authority of God as people are, are met by this church. And as we have a, a Wednesday afternoon now um, table and people, uh, again, come into this building and are fed and are helped, it's all an expression of the kingdom. The rule of God is breaking out. Now, Nick Mudge had a, a kind of dream or a vision this, uh, this week, and uh, I really feel it's important to bring it in here, and that is that the kingdom which we are bringing in as the agents of the king also is something that extends to all the nations throughout the earth. It begins small like a mustard seed, but it grows up like a great tree, says Jesus, and its branches go out right across the whole earth. And we're saying this because it's important to recognize that if you've got roots in another nation, if you come from another nation at some point, or if you've even worked into another nation extensively so that you have another nation on your heart, you need to understand that you are massively included right in the center of this. Because you might think you've had roots elsewhere or come from elsewhere, my brother, my sister, you're not on the edge of this, you're in the heart of this. You're not peripheral to this, you're absolutely central to this. 
because the kingdom of God, as it extends, embraces the nations and the rule and the authority of God. And we'll just respond to that a bit at the end of our meeting this morning. And then also we need to recognize that the kingdom is going to come in the future. And so if you go to uh, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, uh, you've got a wonderful statement here uh, that I really want you just to, to note at the moment. The kingdom, this is at the end, the seventh trumpet has been blown, which means we're at the very end of history in the book of Revelation. And when we come to the very end of history and the seventh trumpet is blown, notice this. The kingdom of this world has become what? The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so at the end, this earth will be regenerated and will become in its fullness the kingdom of God. Now, I haven't got time to go into this in detail, but please be delivered from the idea that when you die, you will live forever up there, out there somewhere, in a kind of remote somewhere out there. It's not like that. You're going to be here on planet Earth, regenerated with Jesus, and this will express perfectly here on a regenerated Earth the fullness of the manifestation of the rule and the kingdom of God. And you and I will rule alongside uh, King Jesus and here we will spend our eternal future as citizens of the kingdom of God, which has redeemed this earth and is expressed in things like there's no more suffering or pain or tears or death because the rule and authority of God is established perfectly here on the earth forever. Amen. And that's what's going to happen in the future at the end of history. And my friends, all of this is being declared when we say yours is the kingdom. We're also declaring yours is the power. Now in the doxology, the praise of God is that he has the power to answer our prayers. But we're saying in our declaration something about the power of God, that God is the power, that God has absolute uh, power in every situation. Let me give you uh, a wonderful demonstration of that, which is one of the really important verses, in my opinion, in Scripture, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, where at the end of what I feel is the greatest chapter in the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes this extraordinary declaration. He talks in verse 19 about the power of the resurrection that is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and exerted him at the, his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now notice this, far above all rule and authority, all power and all earthly dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age that is to come. Jesus, risen from the dead, is exalted to the very highest place, and in his exaltation, he is supreme over every earthly rule, authority, dominion, and power. Now, we're declaring that. And the fact is, we live in a world where men, and sometimes women, are obsessed by power. And sometimes men gain great power, and when they gain great power, they usually corrupt it, which is the story of our world. Men have had power and corrupted it. Think of Roman emperors, think of dictators, 
throughout all of history. Think coming more into our time of men like Starling or Hitler. Think even now Kim Jong-un in North Korea or Vladimir Putin in Russia. These people have colossal power. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is above every dominion and every power. Now, you might say, well, is he? Is he? Well, let me point this out to you. In history, all these men, whether we've named them or they're unknown, unnamed, but they're in history, all these men are blown away. And many of them get killed in battle. Many of them are assassinated. Many of them commit suicide. They're blown away. But even if they stay in power, finally they're taken away by death and an inescapable judgment. Now, I wonder if you feel a bit crushed by present world events. After all, we think of what's happening, it's a terrible situation in Ukraine, and that's only the one that's most in our mind. It's all sorts of situations across the world like that at the present time. Why? Because of a man of power. Why is Ukraine under attack? It's a man of power. And you look at these world events and you can, you can feel crushed by them. You go to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 12. And John is in the book of Revelation. About, it's about to be shown <clears throat> all sorts of horrific events that will happen on the earth. But in Revelation <coughs> chapter 4, sorry, verse 1, in Revelation chapter 4, John says this. Before he sees all these terrible events that will happen on the earth, he says this. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speak to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone seated on it. And we know from the ongoing description it's God who is seated on the throne. What's happening here? What is happening is that before John looks at all the terrible things that happen on the earth, which he will be shown in the book of Revelation, the Spirit says to him, look up. What do you see, John? I see a throne, and I see God seated on it. And my friends, in all the crushing emotions and difficulties of the world as we know it at the present time, you and I as Christian believers need to look up and realize that there is a God that is seated on the throne with all authority and all the power. He reigns, he rules, and we declare it when we say yours is the power. And then we also declare that his is the glory. It was there in the doxology, but we also make a declaration. We not only praise him for his glory, but we make a declaration. We declare his glory. What is the glory of God? You know, I've wrestled with this. It sounds easy. We should talk about the glory of God. But what exactly is the glory of God? How do you define it? In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. But what exactly is the glory? Well, I think we probably most commonly think, well, that's a great blaze of light. It's a bit like... Uh, it's a bit like New Year's Day in central London when all those fireworks go off. It's like fireworks on steroids. That's the glory of God. You know, I think that's the kind of vision that we can have. And I don't want to rule that out. We think of it in terms of shining radiance. I don't want to rule that out. But is there something of the glory of God that we can see now as we declare it? You know, Moses once said to God, show me your glory. 
did he see a blaze of light at that moment? It appears not. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And then you just hold that for a moment. And if you go to John chapter 1 and verse 14, this is what we read about Jesus. John 1, 14. The Word, which is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So what is the glory of God that we can see now? Well, I want to suggest to you it's the goodness of God in part. God is good. (laughs) And his goodness passes in front of us. It's the grace of God, his unredeemed favor towards us. Sorry, his undeserved, I didn't mean to say unredeemed, his undeserved favor towards us. That's part of his glory, the grace of God. The truth of God, his amazing revelation to us of all the truth that is in him and in his son. And all these things pass before us so that even now we see something of his glory and we can declare, yours is the glory. So it's a doxology and it's a declaration. Now, very, very quickly, there's a decision. Uh, we're going through a season of prayer into the third week, of the final week of this now. Not that we stop praying, but a particular season. Uh, uh, I want to encourage you to make a decision to not let this season of prayer slip past you, but to take a step in prayer. All right, take a step in prayer. Make a decision about prayer in this season of prayer. Now, I'm not asking you to go berserk, right? Sometimes, you know, you read a testimony of somebody who got up at four o'clock in the morning and prayed for the next five hours, and they did that every day. And you kind of, oh, better do that then. So you get up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, and that's the only time you do it, because the next day you fall asleep. Okay, so don't, I'm not asking you to go berserk. I, I used to go a bit berserk on it times. You know, I read once at Wesley, John Wesley, he used to get up at four o'clock in the morning and pray for three hours. I thought, wow, better get up very early. And uh, then I read later on that he went to bed at nine o'clock in the evening. And it kind of rather changed my view of it. You know, he got a full night's sleep, actually. So just don't go berserk. I'm not asking for that, all right? But make a decision in prayer. Some examples, right? Very quickly, just some examples. Use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern and a framework. Right, we've been looking at it, so make it a framework for your prayer life. Here's another one that you might decide to do change position. What I mean is this the best way possibly to pray is on your knees. Now, I'm gonna that's wonderful. If you can pray on your knees, fantastic. I want to tell you something very honestly. If I get on my knees and pray, three minutes later, all I can think about is my knees. Right? <laughs> so a lot of the time I will walk in prayer. Right, that's what I do. Now, that might be a tip for some of you. Right? Some of you might find it better to walk rather than to kneel because, you know, you're not just thinking about your knees. Now, my wife says she couldn't walk because she looks into every garden and is critical of what's taking place in the garden. <laughs> but for me, I'm undistracted when I walk. I walk and I pray and I don't fall asleep and I don't feel my knees. All right? So it suits me. So think of a change of position. That might help you. Set a time. Right, now, it's very spiritual to say do it early in the morning. And if you're a very early in the morning person, please do it. But we're not all very early in the morning people, right? So for three weeks, we had a young pastor who 
went to Canada, praise God, because when he stayed with us, when he got up in the morning, he was hyper. I mean, he was whistling and shouting and singing. I thought, please, God, deliver us. I mean, my ears, <coughs> my ears are not awake early in the morning, all right? So, so sometimes, for some of us, it's more realistic to say, no, I need to take, you know, six to half past six in the evening, all right? That's not unspiritual, all right? If that suits you, get the time that suits you, but choose a time and fix on it and use it. Make a public contribution, all right? Some of you have been to, to Life Group for 350 years and you've never prayed out publicly, all right? Uh, and, uh, or you've never prayed publicly in, in, in a church meeting. Okay, well, why not say, Lord, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make a public contribution and pray out publicly. We're not looking for you to change water into wine through your prayers. We're not looking for a miracle. We are looking for something that means that you're in conversation with God, but you speak out. Why not make a public contribution for the first time? Take a step forward. Or seek God for something, get an answer, and give a testimony here. That would be great as a step forward. The great Christian writer Tozer once said, I'm often asked, because he was known as a man of prayer, what is the secret of prayer? You know what Tozer said? The secret is to pray. (laughs) I think we look for something, oh, what's the secret of prayer? Tozer said, the secret of prayer is to pray. My friends, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. It's a doxology, it's a shout of praise, but it's also a declaration of the kingdom, the power, and the glory that belongs to God. Let's make some decisions about prayer. Amen.